Hello, and thank you for joining the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 43, Who is McClellan? In this series, we'll explore the background, character, and contributing factors that may have made a commander a success or failure, wise or foolish, lucky or unfortunate. Being that the Civil War held a great many such men, the list of Union generals alone runs to many pages, we cannot cover every possible general. But this will become the first in a series of episodes that covers the life and times of some of the most noteworthy and significant men, for good or for ill. George Brenton McClellan entered the world on December 3rd, 1826, the third child and second son of Dr. George McClellan. Though many of the boys who went on to enter West Point had highly placed family connections, wealth, or other advantages, few had quite the background of the McClellans. Though not wealthy, Dr. McClellan had as close to an aristocratic background as any American, counting revolutionary brigadiers and pilgrim fathers among the family tree. Dr. McClellan also descended from Scottish nobility, and personally earned degrees from Yale and the University of Pennsylvania. A specialist in eye surgery, he also went on to found Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia. It still exists today, renamed Sidney Kimmel. The wife of Dr. McClellan, Elizabeth Brinton, was also the daughter of an elite Philadelphia family, which undoubtedly helped her son in life. Our George McClellan displayed an extraordinary talent for scholarship, even from his fifth year. His teachers and tutors were themselves men of considerable ability and talent. George quickly learned French and Latin well enough to impress those elders. By the age of 11, he began attending a preparatory academy and then entered the University of Pennsylvania himself at age 13. Now, to be clear, this was somewhat less unusual in that era. In the 19th century, men and boys entered universities if and when they could, provided they showed enough learning to succeed at the academic coursework ahead. Jefferson Davis did much the same, and there generally were no separate high schools, hence McClellan simply began studying hard at that higher level from the get-go. Nonetheless, it seems that even as a child, George McClellan easily surmounted any intellectual challenge offered. The problem lay in the fact that, having entered the academy, McClellan found he had little interest in it. He was still a boy without the perspective of manhood and having seen nothing much beyond his hometown. He therefore went about studies suitable for an older student, but without any real goal to it. He was simply going through the motions with a vague intent of going into law. At some point, however, his mind changed and he asked to attend a military academy, and he knew exactly which one. West Point. Not only was it the nation's premier military school, but a fellow student had also gone there. Dr. McClellan agreed, and went about pressing public officials for the honor of sending his son to West Point. In this, he quickly succeeded. George Britton McClellan entered West Point in his 15th year, as always starting things off rather young. His first days did not go quite as well as may be hoped. He was still younger and smaller than most of the boys, and undoubtedly the physical rigor of West Point challenged him. Yet within just a few weeks, he grew accustomed to the drill field. The onset of autumn also set the cadets returning to the schoolroom, where McClellan always excelled. Indeed, 
If he was among the smallest of the students in body, he might have been the greatest in brains. The schoolwork at West Point, in fact, kept to a very high standard. Often a third of the incoming class would be dismissed, mostly if not always for failure to perform at the level required. McClellan soared to third place out of the entire class. McClellan also made friends at the academy, many of them elite Southerners. His circle included the future Confederate general Ambrose Powell Hill, in fact. He admired their elite sensibilities and breeding, and joined them in looking down on students of more plebeian backgrounds. Significantly, for all of its military focus, West Point remained primarily an engineering school, and this itself is a bit of an oddity. You see, the Corps of Engineers, though doing good work, remained so small that it could and would only accept a handful of graduates each year, sometimes only one man. The West Pointers learned all of these skills, and yet then they were immediately shuffled off into the artillery, cavalry, or infantry as necessary. Indeed, engineering so completely overrode other training that the average West Point student effectively learned nothing about military strategy at all. Of course, they did not ignore drill or military maneuvers, and so had a good practical education in battlefield command. But the average cadet graduated with about as much preparation for high military office as a career politician. None. McClellan climbed the class ranking a bit, but he did have to settle for second place in the end. However, his loss of the first rank to Charles Stewart may have inadvertently saved his career. Cadet Stewart went on to build fortifications. McClellan, though still accepted to the engineers in 1846, would soon have a direct role to play in the Mexican-American War. The cadets all knew about the brewing war, of course, and most felt excitement instead of concern. Battle offered the chance for distinction, attention from high officers, or at the very least relief from the tedium of daily military duty. Over the summer of 1846, McClellan, or rather, newly commissioned 2nd Lieutenant McClellan, set about drilling a company of engineering soldiers. Although armed and able to fight, their purpose primarily was to build whatever might be necessary for the army in Mexico. Therefore, the training involved as much digging as firearms drill. These men might be called upon to build earthworks under enemy fire, cut a road through a battlefield, or dig trenches if thought necessary. In September, McClellan received further orders dispatching him and the soldiers to Mexico. Having gone from being drilled to drilling others on the grounds of West Point, he set out the very short distance to New York Harbor and boarded a ship for Matamoros. Of course, General Tyler had just completed his capture of Monterey, but no one on the East Coast quite knew it yet. Upon arrival, it seemed there was no fighting to be done, and nor would there be for some time. McClellan occupied himself, got sick, got better, and eventually assembled with most of the army for General Scott's invasion of Veracruz. This would become the strategic masterstroke of the war. Many American officers, McClellan included, would attempt to emulate this dramatic advance in the war to come. I should point out here that McClellan's daily needs were attended to by a slave, which has some significance given his future political leanings. He went to war with a servant and often dined on rich food and drink. He sneered down his nose at less fortunate officers, particularly volunteers. And in truth, some of them were genuinely bad, including General Gideon Pillow. 
That man, for instance, had more guts than brains, or at least no particular military knowledge to speak of. He proved it in one amusing incident by essentially digging a fortification backwards. And yet, the volunteer officers did considerable hard work and endured harder fighting in the main, which McClellan either could not or would not acknowledge. He wondered how any shabby soldier with torn trousers could possibly fight, and somehow missed that both they and the Mexican soldiers were already fighting. Men fight with courage and weapons, and hopefully some amount of intelligence, but smart uniforms are distinctly optional. McClellan never entirely came to understand that. Further, if McClellan's assessment of the volunteer officers as friends of politicians and barroom blackguards came a little too close to the mark, he also missed that some of them were hard-nosed and courageous men who turned out to lead their fellow volunteers from home. What they lacked in military discipline, they often made up for with high patriotic morale. McClellan did take part in the largely bloodless investment of Veracruz, which ended with that city's quick capitulation. Here he met a great many of the men who would fight alongside and against him in the future, including Joe Johnston, George Meade, and Pierre-Gustave Touton Beauregard. At times, he worked under the specific instruction of Captain Robert E. Lee, a dashing officer, and possibly the best engineer in the entire army. According to one anecdote, the soldiers posted on the dunes received the incessant attention of biting sand fleas. Neither the first nor the last soldier to endure nibbling pests McClellan and his commander, G.W. Smith, eventually came up with a clever solution. They covered their faces with leftover pork grease and then sealed themselves snugly into sacks. This combination evidently kept the fleas at bay, and they slept soundly, presumably dreaming of bacon. After the quick fall of Veracruz, a victory made possible mostly by the guts of the engineer and artillery corps, General Scott quickly advanced and eventually met Santa Ana at Chiragordo. Here, McClellan received his first taste of battle, but it remained little more than a taste. Relegated impotently to supporting Gideon Pillow, he witnessed the problems of poor leadership firsthand. The volunteer general missed his path in the battle, marched his force right into the teeth of the Mexican army, and completely lost control, as well as many lives. Fortunately, General Scott had effectively already won the battle with a stern flank attack. Scott halted the advance at Puebla, giving time for fresh volunteers to join his army. During this time, however, Lieutenant McClellan received the heartbreaking news that his father had suddenly died. Although not a young man anymore, Dr. McClellan was only 50. George had some time to mourn, but then once more the Americans set out on the long road to Mexico City, where they faced glory or death. They would find both. At Contreras, McClellan first truly earned his stripes. Gideon Pillow posted artillery too exposed to enemy fire, and officers and men were getting cut down in droves. Lieutenant McClellan, helping to sight the batteries as part of his engineering duties, took over when the battery commanders fell dead. He nearly died himself when a shell knocked him down, but survived because his officers absorbed much of the blow. However bloody the work, McClellan not only survived, but received some amount of official note for his courage and effective action. After his victory at Contreras, General Scott immediately advanced on Churubusco. McClellan once again showed courage, this time receiving a brevet promotion to first lieutenant. 
Nor was this the end of his activities. He went on to assist Captain Lee in the artillery support at Chapultepec. He then took his engineering crew and literally carved a road from house to house, knocking down walls so other soldiers could advance and clear position after position. In a day of brutal fighting and wild courage, it was done, and Mexico City fell. Over the coming months, diplomats eventually sorted through the mess, and the politicians took months more to sort out a peace. But the war was more or less over. McClellan returned to West Point, where he took up a teaching role. Although he performed his duties well, he did experience a bit of personal conflict with the superintendent. This seems to have stemmed from McClellan's dissatisfaction with peacetime duty. McClellan, still a young man, craved adventure and travel, and he could have neither at the schedule-bound West Point. That being said, McClellan also held a bit of waspish venom towards any superior he did not unconditionally respect. One sympathizes. McClellan also gained the annoying habit of insisting on his points of honor. On nearly any dispute, no matter how trivial, he would push at length of his preference. That said, he retained all the intellect and never wavered from his line. While his superiors often seemed exasperated with his attitude, McClellan also probably saw them somewhat clearer than they'd prefer. In personal letters, he all too accurately noted they were hidebound relics of an earlier time, and were not keeping up with the changing world. Lieutenant McClellan did have some success in continuing his studies more seriously on the subject of strategy. At West Point, Whatever its deficiencies, he continued to study military history and strategic lessons not included on the general curriculum. For example, he translated a French manual of Bayonet Drill and presented a lengthy essay on Napoleon's disastrous invasion of Russia. In 1851, still only 25, McClellan received the fresh orders he craved. Lieutenant McClellan had begged for orders to go west, and the young man got his wish. He would undertake an expedition up the Red River, charting as they went. Another aspect of this adventure would also change his life. In overall command was Captain Randolph Marcy, one of those men that McClellan unconditionally respected, and something of a legend of the West in his own right. But when George McClellan met him in Fort Smith, Arkansas, he also met Captain Marcy's wife, Mary, and daughter, Mary Ellen. McClellan would exchange letters with the Marcy family for many years to come, and would never forget Mary Ellen. Now, as it turned out, the trek actually held no particular danger, although hilariously, when the men returned in July, they received the news that they were all dead. Rumors confidently declared that the entire crew had been slaughtered by Comanches. In this case, the lie almost literally ran across the country before the truth had its boots on. McClellan, probably amused at having cheated the Reaper, spent much more time in the West and found he greatly enjoyed the military life out on the frontier. Although an excellent scholar, he had long since grown tired of an arena he thoroughly dominated, and longed for one that challenged him on every level. In the military out West, he found it. In 1852, McClellan received an offer of even greater adventure. Having spent a very successful year mapping and charting in Texas, he had a new opportunity exploring the still-unknown lands of the Oregon Territory. The ultimate goal was to build a transcontinental railroad, and the process of doing so 
required an immense labor of charting passes across the Rocky Mountains. McClellan would investigate the interior of what is now Oregon and Washington State, analyzing the known passes and seeing whether they could support rail travel as well. At Fort Vancouver, McClellan outfitted his own band. According to Army rumors, he found great annoyance at a quartermaster, Lieutenant Ulysses S. Grant. McClellan apparently took offense at the latter's habitual drunkenness. If taken by drink, however, Grant evidently had no trouble properly equipping the soldiers. It seems, though, that McClellan never forgot or forgave. McClellan traveled through those mountains for months without much trouble. For once in his life, though, he definitely did not perform that well. The mountain climate was not one he was familiar with, and it seems he grossly misunderstood the landscape. Much of his documentation seems to have misidentified the conditions surrounding each known pass. He thought them far more inhospitable than they really were. That said, he was not alone in this. Several other expeditions, undertaken by other officers with the same rough goals of finding the best route for the railroad, largely also failed to give good reports. McClellan finally gained a permanent promotion to first lieutenant during his time in the West. Also came into conflict with civilians in the area, particularly the civilian politicians, who wanted him to provide a firm written documentation of what he found. McClellan allowed others to turn over their logbooks, but refused to do so himself, and with increasing venom in his exchanges. This was neither the first nor the last time that he came into conflict with civil authorities. That said, following the expedition, he now returned east and eventually received a set of very mysterious orders. These told him to take ship, with no identified destination or purpose. That said, orders was orders, so McClellan boarded the Frigate of War Columbia. There he discovered that his true goal was to scout out a possible naval base located in the Dominican Republic. While ultimately no more than a personal project of Secretary of War Jefferson Davis, McClellan performed well. He scouted the defenses at Santo Domingo and then at the Bay of Samania. This ultimately did little to affect American foreign policy, but it did greatly contribute to McClellan's career. Among other advantages, he had now earned the personal respect of the Secretary of War, no small boon. Somewhat important to his future, Secretary Davis put McClellan to work assembling information about the nation's railroads, focusing on the technical aspects of construction and maintenance. No one had ever yet used the railroad for specifically military purposes, of course, yet the sheer power of the iron horse practically guaranteed that the steam engine would become a vital strategic tool in war-making. Men simply did not yet know exactly how they would use them. Davis's support was also undoubtedly crucial in winning McClellan's next promotion to captain in 1855. Congress had finally gotten around to expanding the army to secure the greatly expanded frontier by adding a whopping four regiments. Still, this, this was a large expansion proportionate to the next to non-existent peacetime army. Captain McClellan also received an appointment to one of the two new cavalry regiments in addition to his new rank. However, he would never really command them. He had less than a month to enjoy any of this news because Secretary Davis then dispatched him as the youngest member of a three-man commission to observe the Crimean War in person. 
This was just about the greatest honor McClellan could have hoped for. Apart from being his first trip to Europe, McClellan would now formally represent his government abroad, and also have the chance to witness the most modern European militaries in action. Now, the Crimean War is a very complex subject, but the very short version is that Russia spent much of the 19th century carving off slices of its neighbors. One of those neighbors, who lost an awful lot of slices, was the Ottoman Empire. Although in decline, the Ottomans proved a remarkably tough lot and resisted again and again, refusing to just collapse. And although no longer quite a match for most of the European great powers, it also proved difficult to invade. And, well, the Ottomans could often find good allies, the enemy of my enemy and all that. But the Ottomans also had a very large amount of territory up in the Balkans or Caucasus, where the local populations were very often indifferent, if not always hostile. The Russian Empire, which claimed to be the defenders of all Orthodox Christianity, also claimed a great deal of sovereignty there, and had some amount of strategic advantages. Russia was also sometimes friends with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had its own ambitions for the Balkans, and did not really spell much good for the Ottomans. In 1853, Russia invaded Turkey with the intent of carving off another piece. But this time Turkey found itself with an eclectic collection of friends, as may be imagined. Great Britain and France dispatched large armies. Austria quietly supported them. And interestingly, the small kingdom of Sardinia not only fought hard, but led the war in key strategic maneuvers. McClellan, however, wasn't all that interested in the politics. He came to study the war, learned how it was fought, and bring back lessons for the American military to master. The other two delegates were older men, who had graduated West Point with distinction 30 years ago. Although intelligent and respectable, they did not necessarily represent the most eager students of modern war. That said, the trio sailed to London and received permission to visit the British position at Sevastopol. This was fast becoming the key point of the war and a grueling campaign of attrition. That being done, they also needed permission from the French given the international nature of the conflict, and that went somewhat less well. The French wanted to forbid the Americans from going on to visit the Russian side of the conflict afterwards, again as neutral observers, under the concern that they might inadvertently reveal something of the French defenses. The delegation declined this requirement and set off to Russia, hoping for more favorable terms. They met with Alexander II himself, but permission they did not receive. The Russians ultimately had the same mistrust as the French. McClellan busied himself in the meantime by analyzing Russian military dispositions and their armed forces, which required teaching himself the language and an entirely new alphabet in the process. With the Russian option no better than the alternative, the delegation returned to France and accepted their terms in the end. They arrived, however, just as the brutal siege of Sevastopol was concluding. This gave McClellan a good opportunity to observe one of the most hardened positions in Europe, and the key fighting ground of the war. He and the other officers triumphantly returned to the United States, none the worse for the wear, and having witnessed some of the most powerful and important royal courts of Europe. That said, McClellan might also have reflected, had he a temperament suitable for it, on what he had not seen in Europe. He had visited the Salons de Paris and the front lines, but he didn't see much of the fighting 
nor the intense logistical effort required to support the armies. And because the parties arrived at Sevastopol only after weeks of lobbying, they missed all the critical phases of that extended siege and the power of the latest innovation of the inexpensive, widely available rifled musket. And in addition to the material elements of war, McClellan also missed an opportunity to observe the crucial soft elements of command in action. That does not mean McClellan came home empty-handed. He ultimately designed a new saddle for the cavalry based on ones he had seen in European service, varyingly described as either Cossack saddles or Hungarian models that had been adopted by the Prussian cavalry arm. The McClellan saddle remained in American service into the 20th century. And yet, it seemed that that was going to be as far as his military career would go. In late 1856, McClellan finished up his report, handed it over to the War Department, and suddenly resigned from the service effective in January. The exact reasons went unstated, but McClellan was becoming interested in a very different kind of conquest. After all, the peacetime military was quiet or even somnambulic. He had gone out on as many adventures as it offered. Wages remained low, and opportunities for high command rare. So many aging gentlemen officers, some of whom had careers stretching back to the War of 1812, stayed at their posts and, well, prevented their juniors from rising. And McClellan really had other opportunities, in part because of his intense study of the railroads under Secretary Davis. He quickly found a lucrative post as a railroad executive of the Illinois Central. The Panic of 1857 briefly caused him a great deal of heartache, but in the end rebounded to his fortune. He quickly became the chair of the railroad and helped steer it through the brutal but brief crisis. In fact, McClellan proved adept at his new role, and integrated steamship services and other transportation to improve the line's economic impact and attractiveness to passengers. He was also beginning to get involved in politics as well as business, and crossed paths with a number of future friends and foes. Ambrose Burnside, an old army buddy recovering from a business bankruptcy brought on by the panic, got a job with the railroad and in fact shared McClellan's house for a time. McClellan also kept writing letters to his old friend, Joe Johnston, who had not left the service. They talked of politics and ongoing wars in Mexico and Central America, and the possibilities of filibustering. Yet even as he was excelling in business, McClellan also fast became interested in politics, or at least more interested. As a member of the social elite from birth, he always had strong political opinions, and they lined up quite neatly alongside Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas. In fact, McClellan almost instantly became a staunch supporter of Douglas and accompanied him on some of his speech-making tours in Illinois. Here he also came across the challenger Abraham Lincoln, although not quite for the first time. Abraham Lincoln, you may recall, was a prominent feature in railroad cases in Illinois, and the Illinois Central was unsurprisingly a fairly major employer there. McClellan thought none too highly of Lincoln the politician, but in fairness, it's hard to see the opponent of the candidate you support even-handedly. That said, much of McClellan's judgment appeared based on, well, appearances. Lincoln always looked more than a bit like the rough-hewn country boy he really was at heart, and many clever, urbane men grossly missed his real strength or intelligence. Lincoln didn't resemble the image of a great leader, at least in their minds. Old Abe taught himself the law, he certainly didn't attend Yale or West Point or any college ever. That said, 
McClellan had to scrounge for time to deal with politics, too, because he finally got married in 1860 to Mary Ellen Marcy. After all, a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Mary Ellen Marcy, for her part, had enough suitors over the years that she practically had to keep a club within arm's reach at all times to fend them off. She had refused the offer of marriage from McClellan's old friend and fellow West Pointer Ambrose Powell Hill, and McClellan had to make his dedication very clear and for a considerable span of time before Mary Ellen accepted his suit. But still, he was young, handsome, well-educated, politically connected, increasingly wealthy, and, of course, a longtime family friend. Whatever her reservations about getting married, Mary Ellen and George McClellan made a fine match, and evidently, their days together were quite happy. McClellan earned a very, very nice wage for the period. After moving to Ohio, they lived in comfort and domestic tranquility. Yet the two would have very little time to relax and enjoy life. 1860, after all, was not a quiet year, and McClellan was deeply involved in politics. That said, like many Northerners, McClellan believed strongly in the National Union, just as Stephen Douglas did, and furthermore, assumed that Southerners would never really try to break it up. After all, were not so many of their best and brightest his close personal friends? Why would they try to split the nation in half? As we know, of course, it was not to be. Douglas lost the election, the Deep South seceded, and the whole world turned upside down. Of course, many months lay between these events and the fall of Fort Sumter. And in that time, strangely enough, some of those Southerners believed that McClellan might side with them. Mansfield Lovell, for instance, an officer who quickly went south, wrote to McClellan in an attempt to sway him to the Confederacy. This had about as much chance of succeeding as an attempt to recruit Lincoln. Rather notably, however, following the fall of Fort Sumter, the Confederates weren't alone in attempting to recruit McClellan. Three separate state governors also wrote to obtain his services. Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York, all vitally important states, sent messages to McClellan. However, Pennsylvania sent their message to the wrong city, apparently by pure accident, and the New Yorkers contacted McClellan only after he had already accepted command of the Ohio militia from Governor William Dennison. Now, at least for the moment, that didn't seem like a terribly promising command. A quick inspection of the state arsenal found it empty of any useful military goods. There was nothing left but ancient muskets and rusted-out cannon. And the soldiers, well, they were a motley collection of volunteers without an ounce of discipline between them. His officers had no more knowledge of war than they did of the moon, and, well, McClellan didn't have much use for volunteer officers anyway. And yet, McClellan turned that around within weeks. Despite shortages everywhere, the War Department managed to dispatch tens of thousands of modern rifles. McClellan immediately got them into the hands of mobilizing soldiers and began drilling them intently near Columbus. And here, I want to step back from the physical processes of mobilization to discuss some of his personal relationships. During each and every step of the mobilization process, as with many other times in his life, McClellan would pause and write to Mary Ellen. Here, he would lay out his fears, his hopes, and unburden himself of any other feelings he may have, oftentimes personal and aggressive ones, 
these were not necessarily always the nice or kind side of his character. But unlike many of his biographers, I don't necessarily think that you should read too much into that. McClellan was a very intelligent man, and, although he had many faults and many misperceptions, he was undoubtedly dealing with all kinds of frustrations, and I don't think it's necessarily wise to take these as anything more than general venting. That said, some of his letters later on in the war, particularly as we get into 1862, reveal more and are even less pleasant. But at least at this moment, in 1861, McClellan is just trying to get arms into the men so that he can actually lead them into battle. It was not a task beyond his ability, but it was one that pushed him to his limit, dealing with men who were not military professionals, at a moment when basically every single military good that could be imagined was in short supply. But he still did the job. Whatever his faults, as a man, as a commander, as a leader, he was a professional doing a job. And I do want to personally say that although I'm going to have a lot, and I do mean a lot, of criticism of his command, McClellan was also possibly the single most brilliant man to ever lead American troops in battle. He learned French, Latin, he taught himself German, he taught himself Russian, he traveled, he explored, he charted, he invented. He ran tough business interests in the most difficult of economic climates. He took his adoring wife, and eventually his children, on a tour of Europe. He visited great men and conversed with great minds. He eventually would become a governor. But there was one field that always eluded him, and that was strategy. And there's considerable irony behind this. As we've seen, he actually gave some real thought to military strategy. He actually studied it academically at a time when that was fairly unusual at West Point. And part of the problem, it seemed, lay in the fact that he rose to relatively high command too early. He did not have a period of seasoning, of connecting with the ordinary soldiers, of leading them in battle under another man's command, and in part that was simply because there was no one else to do the job. The failure of McDowell at Bull Run led to a military necessity of replacing him. McClellan was available, and so he got the job. Now he essentially had to teach himself how to fight a battle, and how to fight a war, and how to build an army, and in very short order, how to manage an entire national military. And he didn't know how to do any of that. In many ways, he did eventually perform fairly well in this role, but this was a new kind of war as well. And truth be told, studying Napoleon and studying General Scott, well, it just wasn't going to do the job. Something more was needed, and McClellan just didn't have that. An early sign of this problem came when he wrote General Scott, and still commanding the forces in Ohio, with a strategic plan that involved leading troops on a southward march, attempting to essentially flank the Confederacy, invest Richmond, and then sweep south. This was impractical for many reasons, much of them lay in the terrain, but also in large part because it ignored the industrial nature of warfare. Richmond was ringed by railroads. It could be reinforced. An attempt to attack it from the West Virginia flank was virtually doomed to failure. 
Now, Scott had the presence of mind to understand that, but he did admire the gumption and the strategic vision it showed, despite the lack of cool planning. So, McClellan got the job. And that is who George Britton McClellan is. That is the story of the man who took command of the Army of Northern Virginia. That is the story of the man who rebuilt it into the Army of the Potomac. That is the story of the man who would sweep to the gates of Richmond in 1862, and the man who would be driven back by his old commander, Captain Robert E. Lee. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you'll come back next time.